Our second, our second reading this morning comes from Paul's, uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. Friends, let us listen for God's word to us today. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Then Paul said, into what then were you baptized? They answered, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling people to, to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. All together, there were about 12 of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you show up in surprising ways and confound us. We ask questions and we learn more. So help us as we come to this text, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On the basement floor of the Barnard College Library, while scouring for resources related to her PhD research, philanthropist Helen LaKelly Hunt came upon a small yellowed booklet. Looking at it at first, she assumed it was a set of minutes detailing the activity at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. This is, some may know, the gathering in upstate New York, widely known as the birthplace of the women's rights movement in the United States. But looking closer, however, Hunt realized that in fact what she held in her hands were notes from a different gathering, one held a few years earlier in May of 1837. The booklet was entitled, Turning the World Upside Down, the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women Held in New York City. While Hunt was deeply entrenched in modern feminist activist circles, she had not heard of this meeting. Reading through this small booklet, she was surprised. She discovered for herself record of the women's abolitionist movement, led by black women and joined by white women as they debated and made decisions together. It was a deeply relational movement that transcended race and attempted to meld two liberation movements with similar goals for equality. Hunt tells the story of finding this booklet in the introduction to her own book, in which she writes the story of this abolitionist movement, focusing on specifically how overtly their faith guided them in their pursuits. This was captivating for her because it touched on something personal. This clear connection between faith 
and activism was something that Hunt felt missing from her own work. She knew internally that her faith drove her and sustained the work that she continues to do, which is emboldening philanthropy among women and for women, but she didn't quite know how to speak of it. We notice that when we can't quite voice how what we believe informs how we live, when this feels disconnected in some way, this dissonance is what bubbles up often to form the questions I sometimes hear and ask myself. Like, what does my faith say about and the inevitable follow-up? So then, what? And this weekend, when we as a nation pause to mark the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., we do so neither with fireworks nor with triumphant parades, but with a day focused on acts of service, connecting into the vision of a beloved community that Reverend Dr. King drew from scripture and experience. Preachers will preach, as I am this morning, as likely many interfaith leaders have throughout this weekend, connecting his faith to his certainty that the and then what meant that something needed to, needs to, change, specifically for the civil rights of African Americans in this country, and more broadly, in the ethic of our actions towards one another. Reverend Dr. King lives on in all of this for what he, alongside many others, was able to progress in the cause of civil rights, though as much so also for the integrity of faith and life that he seemed able to maintain so publicly. It is remarkable to us when one is able to hold these together so consistently what they believe, informing what they do, so much so that we cannot help but pause and attend to it. Because perhaps like Hunt, we are surprised when we come across a witness to such integrity that stakes their life on what they believe, and we wonder what might it take within ourselves, outside of ourselves, to get there. It was as a college student that I first really remember having this experience, this dissonance between faith and life. It was during a class wherein I first encountered writings of liberation theology, this way of looking at God and God's acts and seeing that God has a particular eye on and compassion for the poor. This was the beginning of something new within me. This view of God from the ground up and with a preferential option for the poor worked itself into me in ways that were deeply uncomfortable. Particularly for me, coming from a decidedly privileged experience, and yet in that discomfort was not a threat, but an invitation. If God cares desperately, so desperately, about the suffering of people, enough to be with them. Shouldn't I? On the whiteboard in the classroom where we met, two words with arrows 
finding them both, belief and practice, each informing the other in a perpetual loop. Our belief takes form in action, our action informs and grows our understanding. There was something there that made a lot of sense to me, that provided discernment for the steps that came after, an early nudge into what has become a vocation, bound to the belief that God is deeply engaged with the world, moving us in all ways towards freedom, from injustice to justice, from fear to love. Further, we pick this up best when in relationship with each other, where our belief takes form in action and our actions inform our understanding and our understandings of one another inform our belief. Discipleship is a lifetime of this, of remaking ourselves in the image of Christ, who has already made his home here among us. It is a day in and day out task of taking what we assume to be true and examining it in light of what we know about God, God's unbound love, unrelenting mercy, and loving justice all of which are on display in Jesus. And this is what, or who, John the Baptist was pointing to, even before he knew what forms these would actually take, when people gathered outside of Jerusalem to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. It's no mistake that what would become the most central act of our faith was done in a river accessed and accessible by just about everyone somewhat murky and mucky, as all rivers are, but vital to life. Into these common waters, John invited them, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, turning away from sin, moving away from what they knew somewhere within them was separated, that which did not hold integrity of belief and behavior. Repentance is meant to be a freeing feeling, not a burden of guilt or shame. To repent is to let go of this dissonance, created by feelings of what is not quite right within and around us. It is an act of the individual and an act of the community. In repentance, we, act, we actively choose a way different from those very human acts of greed, jealousy, pettiness, falsehood, regret. We choose to no longer be beholden to these things that devour hope and make waste of joy, that yearn for retribution and entrench injustice. Repentance, though, is the first step. It is setting the stage for something else. And there was John setting the stage pointing beyond himself to something else. The story in the Gospels this morning, that which gives purpose to our celebration today, binding together, uh, to our celebration today, binding together our worship, is that of the time when Jesus himself showed up to those well-used waters. The one John had been pointing to, he came along with the crowds one day, and they, on that particular day, witnessed something rather 
magnificent. It's like showing up for a dentist appointment because you know you need to and being told, you don't have to come back again. <laughs> Into this baptism of repentance descended the Spirit of God in the most dramatic way. Heaven's torn, God's voice, full production value. And everything changed. No longer were we stepping, only stepping away from something, but we were stepping towards something completely new. This is what Paul was getting to when he passed through Ephesus in this quick little story in Acts. The stage was already set. We learn because he spoke to those who already identified as disciples. Prefacing Paul's arrival there were Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, all three of whom had great success in building up the community of disciples, adding knowledge to one another. This was a time, remember, when the movement was growing ever outward. So sometimes the message moved faster than the learnings, and sometimes the learnings were imperfect. Our faith is always seeking understanding. This is especially good to acknowledge in the process of discipleship that sometimes it takes time to learn and to teach. We see this throughout the Gospels and into the early church, the questions and the conversation, the concern, the interest, and the response. This is the relationship part. It's likely why these communities saw more than one apostle come through because this Jesus message was no small thing to communicate. Paul must have encountered this kind of confusion before. In fact, we know that he did in Corinth, for we find language in his letters there too, sorting out into whose name baptism was done. Was it Paul's baptism or Apollos, John's? No, 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 he says. It's Jesus' baptism, the one with the spirit, you know, torn heaven, voice of God. This is important, friends. Pay attention. You want to get this. And they did. And we do. Because it's the spirit whom Jesus sent to accompany us in the meantime between kingdom come and kingdom fulfilled. It is the spirit and the spirit alone who is capable of surprising us on the flip side of repentance with the, and now what? That is, with a sense of how we might just live as though we believe God does what God says she will do. And it is the spirit that nudges us through. Elsewhere, Paul will speak of baptism as an act of putting on Christ, wrapping ourselves in the one who was the perfect marriage of faith and action, because in these waters is both our forgiveness and our now what. This is where our belief takes form in a very concrete act, placing water on our heads to enact a washing, or more poignantly, if we had a large tub, a dying and a rising, a resurrection. And this action informs our belief that we are God's holy and completely. We have put away falsehood and put on truth. 
While we are baptized only once, we remember it often, and we come to this day year in and year out. In this place, we come to this font nearly every single week. We do this because the dissonance in our lives rises up often, and we need to be reminded. As our regrets pile up, as our fear needs to be tamped down, the shame put to rest, and the insight nurtured. We do this because we know that if discipleship is a constant act of remaking ourselves in the image of Christ, of reminding ourselves that it is God's image that we bear, we need help, which is why we do this together. Side by side, neighbors and strangers, all of whom the Spirit is somehow nudging, sometimes pinching, sometimes unabashedly bludgeoning, giving voice and vision to something new, some new way of being or behaving or understanding that helps us sort out when that dissonance rises within us. We are growing, friends, whether in giant leaps or little baby footfalls to know what it is to live with integrity of word and deed, belief and action. This is what can happen when we allow the Spirit to catch us, to work on us. Over time, we see Christ on one another and recognize that we are all clothed in the same light. So now we move to the font where we will risk stirring up these waters, being caught by the Spirit, and perhaps even drawing more closely to that integrity that we seek.